First things first, the title of this sermon is The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached. I need you to know that I am not telling you that I am about to preach to you the greatest sermon ever preached. Uh, That was not the intent. I get that that's how it looks. Uh, The sound booth when I walked in this morning said, uh, kind of fool yourself, aren't you? And pointing to the title. Never occurred to me. Uh, And so uh, right at the outset, I want you to know that I do not believe that I'm about to preach to you the greatest sermon ever preached. But I'm about to give you a message that is based on what everyone universally agrees is the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, We like to, because we're not really balanced uh, right emotionally or relationally, we like to vacation in Phoenix in the summer. Uh, So we wait until it gets really good and hot, you know, about 120, and then we go and we spend two or three weeks out there. We, We love doing that. Occasionally, occasionally we will drive that. And a few years ago, we were driving and going to Colorado Uh, to visit Julie's uh, brother and his family there in suburban Denver, spend a couple of days, and then go on uh, to Arizona. And on the way out, I did what I always do when I'm driving to Colorado. I I get out there on I-70, and let's just all be honest, not a lot to look at out there on I-70, right? It's miles and miles, hundreds of miles of nothing. But as soon as I crossed the Colorado border, I began to have a game with myself to see how quickly I can see Pikes Peak. So how quickly am I going to be able to discern that Pikes Peak's out there in the distance? And usually if you get a really clear day, good and cold, air's clear, somewhere between the state line and Lyman, you can pick out Pikes Peak. And once I spy it, um, our lives are in jeopardy because uh, while I'll keep driving, I'm looking off uh, to, to, to look at Pikes Peak. It's just majestic and beautiful, and I've, I've stared at it so long and so intently, I could probably commit to memory to you uh, in write just a, an outline of it, just drawing it uh, on a piece of paper. But on this particular trip, we decided to do something that I hadn't done since I, I was a little boy. It had been over 40 years, and we decided to drive to the top of it. Um, part of the reason we had never driven to the top of it uh, while we were married is that Julie told me when she was 10 something bad happened on the way up uh, Pikes Peak, um, and that is ingrained in our family's history. So we, we, uh, we didn't do it, but this time we decided to do it, drove up. I got a whole new appreciation for it. I mean, I'd stared at it from the distance for so long that I, I missed the detail. And so seeing that detail, I gained a whole different level of appreciation for it. Now, let me ask you a question. What's the best way to view Pikes Peak? Is it from a distance, seeing its majesty, off in the distance, or is it, is it actually going up at driving up at climbing it, exploring the detail? Well, there's no real right answer. They're both appropriate. They're both appropriate to do. It's, it's appropriate to look at it from the distance and, and, and appreciate its majesty. It's also appropriate to explore it and pick out the detail. The reason I share that story with you is that this morning, we are going to, in one message engage a passage of scripture that just a few years ago we took 10 weeks walking through. What, what we have done uh, in the past is, is climb the mountain. In fact, several years ago, we looked at just the first part of this sermon for several weeks. We've climbed the mountain together. 
But what we are going to do today is stand back and appreciate the majesty. And the reason that it's important to do that is this. I fear that sometimes when we take a very slow walk through the book, at the end of it, we would struggle to tell you what the book is about. I have preached upwards of 600 messages, individual sermons, since I have been your pastor for the past 12 years plus. And I started looking back just last night, almost, in fact, a little over 20% of those sermons have just come from two books, the book of Hebrews. How many people lived through the Hebrew sermon? All right, the series. Several of you all lived through it. 70 messages from Hebrews. About, about 70 messages from the Gospel of John. So uh, over 20% of my ministry here has been in just two books. But I did worry at the end of those things, does anybody know what Hebrews is about? Does anybody know what the, the Gospel of John is about? So what we're going to do today is survey it from a distance, the Sermon on the Mount, in the hopes that when all of this is said and done, we will be able to say to one another, this is what the Sermon on the Mount is about. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the introduction. We are going to look at its three main sections, and then we're going to look at the conclusion so that at the end of the day, we'll be able to say, this is what the Sermon on the Mount is about. And in an introduction, you usually have a thesis statement, some kind of controlling a phrase or idea that drives the rest of the sermon, and that takes place in Christ's sermon, the greatest sermon ever preached. And so we see in the sermon's introduction that statement that Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. That is what is unpacked for us in the introduction. I know that sounds simple and trite, and I don't mean it to be, but that is really legitimately what Jesus is aiming towards. When Matthew introduces the setting of the Sermon on the Mount, it says that Jesus, seeing the crowds, went up, verse 1, on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So those who had made some kind of public demonstration that Jesus is the guy we're following, his disciples came to him, and it says in verse 2 that he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. Now, clearly, the broader audience is in view, but the them he's really focusing on are those who have made a commitment to him. So the majority of us who are here today are the target of this, this greatest sermon ever preached. He is talking to us about what really, really matters. And so he says to them, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, there's a theme in those verses. It's not all the introduction. It's just the beginning of the introduction. But there's a theme in those verses. And the theme in those verses is receiving something that you long for. But not just some kind of wish list kind of thing. Something that you really need. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. I, I am someone who's empty in spirit. I am someone who needs mercy. I mean, these are core things that people need. And the theme that Jesus introduces his sermon with is the idea that that we can have our deepest longings fulfilled. 
Then he goes on to say these words in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They've made a right choice, persecuted for righteousness. Look down upon for the practice of your religion. You who have that kind of experience will receive the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That's connected to the verse that came previously. He's saying the practice of righteousness is tied to me, right? Those of you who are persecuted for righteousness, on my account, tied to me, will be blessed. And verse 12, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus has theme one here, you will receive that for which you desperately long, Theme two, when you find it, in me, you'll be persecuted, but you will be blessed. And then for the remaining verses of the introduction, verses uh, three, uh, 13 through 16, he says that if you really practice what I am telling you to practice, if you let my life shine before you, in spite of that persecution, it will be so compelling that people will be drawn to it. Now, all of that to say that Jesus is calling attention to himself as the source of every human longing, the one who is worth persecution, and the one who can draw people to himself in his introduction. Everybody in the world in which we live likes to say, Jesus was a great teacher, but he wasn't a savior. So they want to say, I'll accept his teaching, I will reject what people say about him, and yet his key teaching, the thing for which he is known, is rooted in him. He is saying at the outset, I'm about to tell you in ways that are very practical and that you can grasp that I'm the one you're looking for, and I'm worth whatever it costs. So, the sermon's introduction, the statement is, Jesus is the answer. Section one, he goes to begin to explain all this. By letting us know that only Jesus can transform your life. Only Jesus can transform your life. He's getting ready to explain all the ways that he's the answer, and only Jesus can transform your life. Now, I want you to stop and think with me about the whole exercise of religion. When we think about religion and when we think about morality, we tend to think about these things in an external fashion. So in other words, I I need to to be moral in this visible, tangible way. I need to express my commitment in this visible and tangible way. And all the Jewish religion was built entirely around expressing oneself visibly so that people could look at you and say, you are a saint and not a sinner. The problem was, if you're really thoughtful about your practice of faith, is when you go to bed at night, you're going to have a gnawing sense that you're not living your true self for everybody to see. Because you see, I, I, can, I can appear on the outside to be gentle and kind and 
and good, but know that on the inside, that's not who I am at all. So religion tends to put you in a situation where you're just faking your devotion for everybody. And if you're thoughtful about your religion, you recognize, I'm doing these things that do not come natural to me. That's not really who I am. And so Jesus says, I'm going to show you a different way. I'm not going to give you a new set of rules. I'm not going to say those things weren't working in the Old Testament. Here's a new set of rules. I'm just going to get you to think differently about the rules that you already have. And so he begins to unpack that idea in verse 17. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. Well, how can your, your righteousness, how can, how can your morality, how can your visible goodness exceed those guys? I mean, those guys are, are, are like our leaders, and, and, and they're the ones that we try to model our lives after. How can we exceed their righteousness? Jesus says, here's how. Don't fake it anymore. Have what is external becomes intrinsic to you so that you are manifesting your authentic self. And he goes through and he begins to talk about six ways that people would point to. Anger lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, loving your enemies. Six key areas of Jewish life where they say, do this, don't do this. And he says, you know, in every one of those ways, in every single one of those ways, you can on the outside look like you're good, but on the inside, be wrong. You may not kill anybody. Good for you. That's a big high bar to clear right there, right? But on the inside, you're full of rage, and anger, you're triggered by everything, and you may have learned to suppress it, but you're just seething. Jesus says the way you exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees is that you're truly changed. Not, not just living out these different things, checking it off the list, but you're truly changed. Remember a couple of weeks ago, Last message from the Old Testament, we looked at Jeremiah 31, and the prophet Jeremiah envisioned a day that when the Messiah would come, the law of God wouldn't need to be taught to anybody anymore. We wouldn't need preachers anymore, and the reason why is because the law would be written on the heart. This is what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, I, 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 I have come so that your righteousness can exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, so that you can truly be a changed person. Jesus calls attention to himself in the opening remarks of the Sermon on the Mount and then says, first, I'm the answer because I alone can transform your life. Then next, Jesus says, I'm the answer because only Jesus can connect you with God. All right, let's play a game. Someone comes to you and says, I really want to connect with God. How do I do that? How do I connect with God? And almost every one of us right now, as we kind of form our list, we're saying, okay, well, you've got to read your Bible. 
Um, got to pray. Got to go to church. Um, and some other things that holy people say, but I don't really know right now. So those are the three things. And then that person asks you really, so I, I, I read my Bible, I pray, I go to church, that'll connect me with God. Do those things help you connect with God? Well, uh, yeah, it's just a work in progress. The fact of the matter is, a lot of us do a whole lot of religious stuff, practice devotion, and are never connecting with God. Let's just be real honest. I mean, when's, when's the last time yet you were, you were reading your Bible and man just had a, man, God's speaking to me here. When's the last time you just got swept away in prayer? God is, God is speaking to me here. When's the last time that in worship you just got lost when you were with the people of God? The fact of the matter is, most of us do a lot of religious stuff, aren't connecting with God. And so Jesus begins to talk about that connection, calling attention to himself as being the source of that connection when you get to chapter 6. And he talks about things in chapter 6, for instance, like giving, which was a devotional practice important to the Jews, uh, praying, which is a devotional practice important to us today, fasting, which is a devotional practice that's important to people who aren't Baptist, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because the sign of our faith is a covered dish, Right? I mean, this, this is how I know I'm following Jesus. Here's my casserole. Um, but he begins to talk about these things. And he recognizes that there are people that are giving to the needy, not connected to God. There are people who are praying, they're not connected with God. And there are people who are fasting, not connecting with God. And so, notice he doesn't say, don't do those things anymore. He says you're to do them, but with the focus different. See, the thing is, is that if I told you in order to, to connect with God, you've got to read your Bible, and you've got to pray, and you've got to go to church, in doing those things, very quickly, the focus can become on the thing, right? I, it, it's not, I'm praying so I connect with God, it's I'm praying. And it's not that I'm reading the Bible so that I can connect with God, it's so that I'm, I'm just reading the Bible. And I'm not coming to church so I connect with God, I'm just just come to church, your focus can start to be on the thing. So in every one of these things, as Jesus talks about them again, he focuses on the idea of secrecy and hiddenness. But we can't get swept away with a literal understanding of that hiddenness or that secrecy. Like I did when I was in junior high and really started to take my faith seriously. I was reading a passage of scripture like this in the New Testament and talked about praying. It said, go to your closet. And I said, well, Okay. I, seriously, I did. So, because I, I was a junior high boy, I cleaned my closet out and got me a little spot in there, and I took my flashlight, and I took my pen, and I took my journal, and I took my Bible, and here I am in my closet, just like Jesus said. What was I focused on? Being in my closet like a knucklehead, not connecting with God. And see, Jesus isn't talking about hiddenness here as something else to do. Jesus is saying, I want you to begin to understand that the purpose for these things isn't the doing them, it's the connection with God that they facilitate. And the way that that can be facilitated in your life, go back to the introduction. Me, through me, 
And through your focus on me in your prayer, through your focus on me in reading the Bible, through your focus on me in your giving, through your focus on me in your fasting, you connect with God. So section one, Jesus is the answer because he alone can transform your life, internalize, change who you are so that these things become natural expressions and not foreign things, this morality that we attempt to live. And then he, he says, okay, uh, now I can help you. I'm the answer because I can help you connect with God. You focus on me and not the doing of the thing in your religious practices. And then section three, he says, I'm the answer because only I can give you peace. Only I can give you peace. He talks, as he shifts out of this talk on fasting, about the folly of trying to base your security on things that don't matter and don't last. These things that will, that will decay with, with, with time. They, they just simply cannot last. He talks about the folly of doing that. Then he has these beautiful words, these beautiful words about how God has so wonderfully provisioned the world in which we live, that if you're following him and his eye is on you, everything will be given to you that you need for living. And so, he says, rather than base your security on these things that don't matter and can't last, instead do this in these words that almost everybody knows from Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Seek first the kingdom. And right now is where you hop in and say, I have an objection to your entire message. You keep saying that Jesus is the answer because he alone can transform me, and you, that's what this sermon's about, and you're saying that this sermon is about Jesus saying he's the answer because he alone can give you a connection with God, and now you're saying that Jesus is the answer because he alone can give you peace, and he's never said that in this passage, not once. Not once has he ever said that, except right here. Seek first the kingdom. How did Jesus understand the kingdom? Did he understand it as a, a system of government that was to be set up in the world in which we live? Did he understand it as being something to attain or to strive for outside of us and outside of him? No. Jesus, point blank, in Luke chapter 7, verse 21, is asked, what is the kingdom of God? And he says, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Clearly saying, the kingdom of God is me. The epicenter for the rule of God in the world in which we live is me. And so he is saying here, seek first me. And the righteousness which exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And peace will be given to you. All that you need. All that you need. All that you're looking for, a transformed life to where you're authentic with people and in, in, in how you're portraying Jesus. And, and you can connect with God 
to where it's not just religious exercise. And you can have peace. All these things will be added to you. I am the answer. And then we come to his conclusion. And the conclusion is a summary and a warning. First several verses of chapter 7 are just a summary. Jesus grabs things kind of loosely and ties them into what he has already talked about. He talks about judging and how it's wrong to judge. And the reason it's wrong to judge is because who somebody is on the outside may not be who they are on the inside. No, by the way, who you are on the inside is not who you're claiming to be on the outside. So shush. And then he, he talks about things which are essentially devotional practices. Being good to people. Um, he talks about prayer. And he reminds them that that if you're truly connected with God, those things become authentic to who you are. You're able to live these things out. And that's the summary. But then he, he brings everybody to an absolute point of decision. He says in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? External thing. People could see it, measure it, check it off. Did we not cast out demons in your name? A visible thing. People could see it, check it, mark it off. Did we not do mighty works in your name? People could see it, check it. Mark it off, and then I will say, declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker, doer of lawlessness. I never saw me and you. I saw you faking me. I never saw me. In you. And so then he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Understand, after, after all of his teaching, he says, if you don't follow me, your life's going to be a disaster. You, and the worst thing that could happen to you is that you don't know that until it's too late. But if you follow me, your life will have a grounding and it'll have a substance to it. Because I'm transforming your life. And through me, I'm connecting you with God. And by trusting me, you have a peace that is not dependent on your circumstances. And that is the majesty of the Sermon on the Mount. And all of us need to explore this mountain and learn all we can from it. But today, I want to challenge you to think about the hope that it offers and the price of ignoring it. 
The entire history of religion has seen mankind focus on what we must do to make ourselves worthy of the God or gods that we worship. But the only way that we've been able to accomplish achieving that worth to those God is by changing the rules. Either by minimizing what the gods expect or overemphasizing what we can achieve. But tucked down deep in the human psyche is the gnawing suspicion that it's not enough and that it will never be enough. And into that uneasiness steps Jesus, who states the obvious. You're right. (laughs) It'll never be enough. But then he states what has never occurred to us. I'm enough. And I'll always be enough. The good news of the Christian faith isn't that there's a new set of rules to follow. The good news of the Christian faith is that Jesus paid it all. That he paid everything that is necessary for all of our sins. And he bridges the gap in his perfection that had always been lacking in our sinful imperfection. And that if we will seek him first, if we will make him not a Sunday habit or a box on a census form, But if we will make him first, seek him first, all these things, life transformation, so that we are authentically holy. And and connection with God, so that we're not just going through the motions again in our Bible reading, and again in our prayer, and again in our worship will be ours. And peace, genuine peace if we seek him first, will be added to us. If you want to summarize in one sentence the Sermon on the Mount, here it is. Jesus is our only hope. And he is holding out himself as that hope to every single person here today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, please.